Sarah of D.L. Moody, tells of a Methodist preacher who often spoke on the subject of sin. He meant no words, but defines sin as that abominable thing that God hates. A leader in his congregation came to him one, on one occasion and urged him to cease using that ugly word. Pastor, he said, we wish you would not speak so plainly about sin. Our young people here in you will be more likely to indulge in sin. Call it something else, an inhibition or an error, a mistake, or even a twist in our nature. I understand what you mean, the preacher remarked. Going to his desk, he brought out a little bottle. This bottle, he said, contains strychnine. You'll see the red label here says poison. Would you suggest that I change the label so it reads wintergreen? He made his point. You can call sin by whatever name you want, but it's sin nonetheless. We live in a culture that has a split personality, a disassociative identity disorder. On one hand, our culture is all about protecting our children. New parents are taught how to childproof your house. I mean, they have gadgets that we never dreamed of when I was growing up to close off cabinets and all of that. And, and uh, they, uh, medicine bottles now, they say they're childproof, but the children are the only ones who can open them because my arthritis won't work open the top of that bottle. Um, there's warnings about leaving your Tide pods on top of any place where the kids can reach them because they might eat them. Um, kids have to wear helmets now when they ride their bikes. I don't know how we all got to be so old. <laughs> Which one of you wore, wore a helmet when you were growing up to ride your bicycle? Uh, you can't legally use a used baby seat in your car. I mean, we used to pass them on down. All right. When I grew up, there was no baby seats. There were no seat belts. Just my dad or my mom's arm when they had to stop fast to make sure that... But we're all about protecting our children. However, on the other side of the coin... They don't want you to talk to your children about sin. They want you to tell your, ch your children, just do whatever you want, because that's the way you are, and, and, and always give your children positive admonitions. Part of the daycare system says you're not supposed to say no to children. I don't know. Somebody who never had children made that rule. I mean, in the name of tolerance, they have no tolerance for us opening the Bible and saying, this is sin. And sin is fatal. There are eternal consequences. In a place where Jesus said, your worm will never die, your soul will never die, and there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and torment, forever. And yet, 
The culture wants to protect their children says don't talk to our children about sin. Don't talk to adults about sin. The Apostle John, who was all about the love of God, in our passage of Scripture today, he talks very plainly and very boldly about sin. Last Sunday morning, we started in chapter 3 of 1 John, and it's, it's the beginning of a, of a second section of 1 John that deals with a second major theological point. Back in verse 5 of chapter 1, we learned that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When we started in chapter 3, in verse 1, we start this section that's going towards chapter 4, and in verse 8, where he's going to say, God is love. Not God has love, or God loves. God is love. And we talked about it last week. See what kind of love God has for us. The Father has lavished upon us. But he can't talk to us about the love of God without raising the issue of sin. Because he's writing against the Gnostics who've come and they begin to declare that your salvation is all a cerebral thing. It's a spiritual thing. It has nothing to do with your physical body. If you know what we know, if you have this knowledge, this spiritual knowledge up in your brain, you make it to heaven. While you're here on earth, you can do anything you want in your body because your body cannot be redeemed. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed the Spirit came on that man, Jesus. I've told you that over and over. And there was they, there's false teaching. People can live any way you want and say you're a Christian. He said that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And we'll get to that. Let's start over in verse 1. I'm not going to preach verse 1 again, but I just want the context. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 4 contains the most concise identification of the source of all human heartache and misery. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It must have been 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, that Billy Graham made an observation. Dr. Billy Graham said this, and I put it in your notes. He said, we stand at the heart of a world revolution. Our world is on fire, and man without God cannot control the flames. The fires of greed, hate, 
and lust are sweeping uncontrollably around our globe. We live in the midst of crisis, danger, fear, and death. It's no better today than it was when he spoke those words, in fact. It's multiplied many times over. And the reason for that is found in this one word, lawlessness. Lawlessness. In the 1960s, there was a movement, the one described by Dr. Graham's words, that has only gotten worse with the passing of time. It started out with a generation of people, like every generation before them, was fed up with the way the older folks were doing life. Only they took it to a whole new level. I'll sum it up with the result. There's a widespread, universal refusal to acknowledge authority in our day. There's a widespread, universal refusal to acknowledge authority in our day. And it started with the flower movement, the peace movement, the hippie movement. I won't ask you how many of you were one of them. Thank the Lord you've been redeemed. There is a determination to please self at all cost. To do what I want regardless of other people. That's what the Gnostics were advocating in their day. Lawlessness. Both as a principle as an activity. A lawless attitude within every heart resulting in the lawless acts by every person. A lawless attitude within every heart resulting in lawless acts by every person. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. John says a born-again believer cannot willfully continue to practice sin. If you continue to willfully practice sin, it indicates you really don't know Jesus. Now, I believe he's talking about something far greater than just us breaking some of the man-made laws. We're not going to take a poll today to find out how many go 40 in the 35-mile-an-hour zone on your way to church. If you're only doing 70 going down the freeway, you're apt to get run over. I mean, there's... And how many would be fearful if they audited your income tax? I didn't look at anybody. Lawlessness. It's not talking about that kind of lawlessness. John is talking about God's laws. God's laws. And the first thing, when I say God's law, the first thing that comes to our mind is the Ten Commandments and all of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where he gave them the laws that they were to live by in their culture. And I thank God for the laws that he gave them because that became the basis for the Constitution of the United States and the foundation of this country, where for a, a couple hundred years we were a law-abiding people. 
but now lawlessness. But I want to think about law as an expression of the nature of things. That is, after all, what laws are. They're an expression of reality. Laws are an expression of reality. God's laws. God's laws. Let me illustrate. There are some laws that God put into motion that are irrefutable. Have you heard of the law of gravity? The law of gravity. Because the way that God created this planet and the moon and there's this gravitational force that pulls things down. What goes up will come down. Now we can override the law of gravity with an airplane as long as you have fuel. But which law wins out when you run out of fuel? It's the law of gravity. Water runs downhill because of the law of gravity. The gravitational influence of our moon dictates whether it's a good clam tide or not a good clam tide. The gravity, it, I mean, they can put it in the paper what the tide is going to be because it is very consistent. It's a law that God put into place when he created heaven and earth. How about the laws of electricity? The laws of electricity. There's very few of us who understand all the laws of electricity. I don't think even electricians understand it. They just know if there has to be a circuit. And the circuit has to be complete. And if you break the circuit, the electricity doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Now, somebody says that man created electricity. No, they didn't. God created electricity. Man just learned how to channel it and to use what God created. There's the law of being. The law of being. In the book of Genesis, we read the synopsis of how the world began and how everything we see was created. Contrary to what Darwin and his associates would have you to believe, that it was all a cosmic accident, and somehow, from somewhere, there came this single cell that decided it wanted to be two cells, and it, it began to then three and four cells. God created everything. And after he created everything that's living, plants, animals, and humans, you can read it in the book of Genesis, and everything produced itself in kind. In kind. You plant apple seeds, watermelons are not going to grow on that tree. Dogs breeding do not produce cats. Monkeys breeding make monkeys, not human beings. God's laws. Just as the law of gravity is irrefutable, the law of electricity is the same. The laws of being are unchangeable. God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them one law, one commandment. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is a divine law. If you sin, 
you will die. If you disobey God, you will die. Paul put it this way, the wages of sin is death. It's a law of God. It's a reality. Lawlessness is to behave as if there are no such laws. Lawlessness is to become a law to yourself, to make up your own rules for life and disregard those that already exist. Lawlessness is to become a law to yourself, to make up your own rules for life and disregard those that are already exist. It's to close our eyes to reality. It's to ignore truth. It's to act as if fantasy has become reality. Lawlessness is the sin of open defiance to the laws of God. Open defiance to the laws of God. The scripture tells us there's four ways that we sin. At least four. If you put them in general terms. Romans 14.23 says this, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And you can read the context in your own time to figure out exactly what he was talking about. James 4.17, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sins of omission. I didn't do anything. Sometimes that's the sin. I didn't do anything when I should have done something. That's sin. 1 John 5, 17 said, All wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing is sin. But the sin that John is addressing in our lesson today is that defiant attitude. I'm going to do what I want to do. Verse John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We learned in chapter 1 of our study that um, we all have moments when we sin. Anybody who says they have no sin, he says, is your liar. The truth is not in you. But that sin is not fatal to us because we're walking in the light as he is in the light and we confess it and we say, Lord, forgive me and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin and unrighteousness. Those ongoing moments of failure are not the issue. The issue is when I make a choice to continue. I know I should not do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. Jonah shows us a great example of the defying the word of God. God said, go to Nineveh. He got on a boat and he went 180 degrees the opposite direction. The good thing about Jonah is he repented and God sent him back to where he wanted to go in the first place. If he would have continued in his sin, it would not have ended well for him. That's what John is trying to say. True believers will not continue to keep on doing that sin. 
I will not, if God has convicted me, you should not do that, or you should do this. And I continue to make that choice deliberately, that's lawlessness. And John is going to say in a few moments, if I continue that way, that's proof that you really didn't get converted. You really didn't know Jesus. Walk in the light. Let's read these next few verses, verses 5 through 10. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John writes in a circular fashion. I've told you that several times. He keeps coming back, and here we come back to the test of morality. We talked about the three or four tests that he puts in this, and he, he, as he comes back, every time he gets just a little deeper, uh, laying truth upon truth. We've all sinned. We're all lawbreakers. We've already read, well, the wages of sin is death. But I love verse 5. Jesus appeared to take away sins. He appeared to take away sins. That's the number one reason Jesus appeared in the flesh. John the Baptist introduced John Zebedee, the son of Zebedee, to Jesus this way. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you must, you must link the latter part of that verse. In Jesus, there is no sin. In Jesus, there is no sin. Jesus is the only one who can take away sin. Because he is the only one to live without sin. He's the only one who could take away sin by paying the penalty for sin because he's the only one who lived without sin. Came across a story in my reading this week of a man named Thomas Vanderwood. And his wife Mary Ellen had seven children. By the time they were expecting their seventh child, the chance of birth defects were pretty high because they were in their 40s. And sure enough, Josie the seventh was born with Down syndrome. They named him Chris Vanderwood. One of his brothers later said it didn't matter that Josie had Down syndrome. He was my father's son, and that was all the reason my father needed to love him. Thomas demonstrated that love in 2008 
One morning, Thomas and Josie were in the yard. When Josie fell into a broken septic tank, which at eight feet deep was extremely dangerous. Thomas tried to reach down and grab his son, but he could not reach him. So he lowered himself into the tank. And because he couldn't keep Josie's head above the water line, he decided to hold his breath, go under the water, hoist Josie onto his shoulders to keep him breathing. By the time the rescuers arrived, Thomas had died saving his son's life. That's a small picture of God's love for you and me today. Jesus died by putting us on his shoulders that we might live. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves you. He needs to love you. I hope you can believe that. Because when you believe that God loves you, it makes a fantastic difference in the way that you live your life. He loves me. He loves me. One of the problems with the Gnostics theology is they did not understand the love of God. They didn't get it. They, they didn't see him as the Father, the perfect Heavenly Father. The Father that loves us so much that he became flesh and jumped into the cesspool in order to save us. When he says he took away our sin, it wasn't a matter of saying, oh, I just want to be nice today and so I'm just going to write it off. It wasn't a matter of a magic wand. The only miracle that took place was that God became flesh and died in your place and my place. But because he had no sin, he raised again to life, life everlasting, that he might give to you and I eternal life. Whoever has a son has eternal life. Notice this. Jesus appeared to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. I can make a series about this, but I just want to really hit three or four points. The works of the devil are this, the destruction of life. Jesus said in John 10, he came to kill. The destruction of life. Darkness. His work is darkness. The extinguishing of light. He is the prince of the kingdom of darkness. Darkness to deceive people. Hatred. Hatred. The violation of love. Where does all the hatred, the bigotry, the racism, where does it all? It all comes from the one who is cast out of heaven because he sinned. The first sin took place in heaven. 
And he came here and infested the world with a spirit of pride and deception and darkness and, and hate and, and, and death. Death. That's the consequences of lawlessness. Jesus appeared to destroy those works by imparting life. By imparting life. Whoever believes on him shall have eternal life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He imparts life. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, it will quicken your mortal bodies. Jesus came and he turned on the light. The turning on of the light. He stood one day at the great feast and said, I am the light of the world. As they were extinguishing the great torches that they had for that great feast, he stood and said, you've heard not that one, but here, here's the deal. I am that light. I am the light of the world. I've come to show the light of God, to give truth, to be a kingdom of light. Jesus came, and he destroyed the works of the devil by awakening of love. By the awakening of love. John writes over and over, Jesus loved us, God loves us, and because God loves us, we love one another. Jesus said, no greater love is any man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. I'm laying down my life for you. Now, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. John tells us in this passage, the authentic believer bears a family resemblance. The authentic believer bears a family resemblance. Verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 10, It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I talked about last week or the week before that or last week I talked about the fact that I have a hard time hiding the fact who my father is or was because put us in the same room and take my daughter Shauna and put her in the same room with her wife my wife Vicki there's no doubt and John is saying there's no doubt who the children of God are as we watch the way they live their life there's the fruit of the spirit so how do we avoid living lawlessly Somebody says, well, I don't know why you're talking to a bunch of Christians about living lawlessly. We all know that those are the people out there. Remember when I said lawless is defiance. It's not doing what God said to do. Sometimes respectable Christians are lawless when they don't do what the Father tells them to do. The key is abiding. The key is abiding. Verse 6 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9 said, for God's seeds abide him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. The relationship of a believer to Jesus Christ involves him in two aspects. Abiding in Christ is an advance on simply being in Christ. 
Our Lord spoke of these two aspects of the disciples' relationship. He described them in John 14, 20. In that day, he said, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's the night before he's crucified. He's telling him, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to send the Comforter. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, you in me, and I in you. You in me is to be in Christ. It is to be in Christ. I believe. I receive. I'm in Christ. It is to be joined in a union with him that results in a new birth. The impartation of life and his love by an act of faith. It is to receive him. It's to act on the invitation He stands at the door and knocks. The man opens, I will come in and sup with him. When you do that, when you open your heart to him, you are in Christ. You're in union with him. You are in me. That's the first part of the union. But that's not the aspect John is describing here. The union does not necessarily result in being freed from the bondage of sin. It makes freedom possible. It's all potentially there, but in itself does not result in deliverance. That's why, as we've seen, it's possible to be in Christ and go on living for time in sin lawlessly. But the second relationship is this. I am in you. I in you. Christ in us. He makes his home in us. When he makes his home in us, that frees us from sin's reign. We allow him to live through us. We expect him to live through us in every moment of our experience. Let me run that by you again. You need to chew on that one. We allow him to live through us. We expect him to do so. In every moment of our experience, we sang, come live in me. All my life, I give it to you. When I was praying, I prayed to be filled with the Spirit. There's this ongoing daily surrender to the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of me. Paul put it this way, I crucify the flesh. I don't live the way... The flesh says, I want to live. I live the way the Holy Spirit says to live. That's abiding in him. And when I abide in him and he abides in me, both sides, I abide in him, he abides in me, there is power over sin. That's what living a God life looks like. Realizing I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere I go, Jesus is with me. Greater is he that is in me. We'll get to that in the next chapter of 1 John. Greater is he that is in me than he's in the world. There are some great things that happen because we abide in Jesus. John 15, 5 says, Whoever abides in, him, in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit 
from apart from me you can do nothing. But if I abide in him and he abides in me, there will be abounding. It's abounding. There will be fruit. Abiding is abounding. The fruit, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That is the marks of one who abides and allows the Lord to abide in them. Later on in the same chapter, he says, John 15, 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Effectual prayer is the result, not of being in Christ, but of abiding in Christ. Are your prayers being answered? Are you seeing God at work in your life experience? Are the things that you ask for clearly in line with God's great program coming to pass in the life of individuals for whom we pray? This is a promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask whatever you will within that relationship, within that relationship, and it shall be done for you. John says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning or lawlessly. He's able to live godlike. Therefore, this relationship of abiding is very, very important. So what is it? Somebody might say, this is what bothers me. I've heard all these great promises and God knows I want them, but it eludes me. What is this abiding anyway? Well, let's ask the Lord for a clarification. What if it means to abide in him? John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I think that's pretty plain. If you obey me, you'll abide in me. You'll abide in my love. He that abides in me bears much fruit. He that abides in me can ask whatever he will, and I will give it to him. He that abides in me will not continue in sin. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Of course, that obedience is by faith. That obedience is by faith. It's not an exhortation to give ourselves to groveling, dogged obedience. Here's a rule, and I've got to do it. It's an expectant obedience. It's an obedience that acts expecting him to come through to make it a joy. Because it's an obedience based upon a love relationship. I'm not earning his love I'm in that relationship because he loves me. And because he loves me, I love him in return. And so it's an expectant obedience because he's made some promises. I abide in him. These things will take place. The fruit of the Spirit will flow through me. My prayers will be answered. I'll, be, I'll have victory in the areas of sin because I'm walking in this relationship with him by faith. 
by faith. So how does it work? How does it work? Set yourself to do what he says, expecting him to act. And the minute you start doing it, the power to carry through will be there to make you able to do it and make it a joy. And that's a long sentence. Something for you to meditate on Monday morning. Set yourself to do what he says, expecting him to act. And the minute you start doing it, the power to carry through will be there to make you able to do it and make it a joy. For example, when Joshua was to take the children of Israel across the Jordan River, they're going into the Canaan land after 40 years of wandering in circles in the desert. Moses is dead. God says, Joshua, it's time to go. We're going to cross the Jordan River. God, it's flood stage. There are times the Jordan River they could have waded across, no problem. But right now it's been the rainy season, torrential rapids coming down there. You remember what God said to Joshua? He said, I want you to put the Ark of the Covenant on the priest's shoulders. And I want you to tell the priest to walk into the water. Now, how many would like to sign up to be the lead priest? And when the sole of their shoes touched the water, when did that water part? Not till the soles of the shoes touched the water. They had to obey God against what they could see with their eyes. God said, do this. They did it. The waters parted. A couple million people plus crossed through on dry ground. The water was held up long enough. They put a monument in the riverbed and another one on the bank. But it all started with the obedience. Step, take a step, take a step. It was when they acted on what they were told to do, despite any appearance that anything was happening, that it happened. It was when they acted on what they were told to do, despite any appearance that anything was happening, that it happened. God was teaching us in that miracle a principle, a law, that lasts forever. When we obey God, when we hear his command, whether we feel like it will work or not, the whole idea is to obey. Act on it. When we hear his command to us, act on it. Act on it. Do what he says. When we do, we discover the minute we act, the power of God to carry it through. What we are hoping to accomplish will be done because we have obeyed God. We discover that God is with us. We discover that if we keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. That's what Paul was saying to the Philippians when he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you 
God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. That's the thing that pleases Him. It's God working in us. Verse 10 gives us a question. Do you find it difficult to love some people? Hopefully it's not me. But the reality is that's one of the most persistent and nagging problems of life. Someone treats us cruelly, indifferently. Our natural reaction stemming from our tie with Adam is immediately to strike back, to avenge ourselves, to cut them off, to don't speak of them, or to say something really caustic, or nowadays post it on Facebook. Our desire is to avenge, but that's not the command of the Lord. His word is very clear. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not avenge yourself. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and despitefully use you. Pray for your enemies. Love one another. Love one another. John 13, 34, John 15, 12, John 15, 17. On and on it goes. But I don't feel like doing that. If you wait for the feeling, you'll never feel it. Unless you need a favor from them. They didn't go into the water because they felt like it. They went into the water because God told them to. Muddy, dirty, rapids. That could wipe them out in a moment. God said to do it. So when you set yourself to act toward this individual whom you're finding difficult to love, just love them like love would act. Do what love would do. If you respond the way love would respond, you know what you're going to discover? Pretty soon, that feeling that you thought you'd never have again floods back into your heart because you obeyed the word and you can expect him to fulfill his part of the promise. You will see that person who had a difficult time as being, they were an obstacle in your, in your pathway. But what you'll see now is a person like you who has problems that needs Jesus to solve. As a person who needs some understanding and some acceptance. The problem will clear up as your problems have cleared up. Are you tempted to lust? In our sex-saturated society, to give way to lust and desires that you know are wrong, God's word is flee youthful lust because they war against the soul. Sex is not wrong. Sex is wonderful. Sex is what God made it to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife. But the improper use of that sexual union is always wrong. God said flee it. Pursue love and peace and happiness, these things. 
turn from the wrong and, and go a positive way expecting in faith that you're going to find the release of God's power, his cleansing love, purifying your heart and your mind. There'll be gladness in your heart. A non-regenerate man, a non-Christian, if he wants to, for one reason or another, can set his will against doing something as harmful, wrong, or evil, and can stop it, certainly can. But he will never have a particular joy in doing so. He will be acting from this grim, dismal determination to walk in this way. But the difference for the Christian is this. When I act in obedience, Christ is there. When I act, Christ is there. I don't know if you've discovered it, but I've discovered there's nothing more precious than sensing and knowing the presence of Jesus Christ. In his presence is fullness of joy. That's what the psalmist learned in his life, and I've learned it in my life. In his presence is fullness of joy. We obey him, we abide in his love. Every act of renunciation against the acts of sin results in something of God's glory being imparted to us, his joy, causing us to rejoice in his grace. If you have him, you can do these things. If you don't have him, you can't. That's why he says, no one who continues in sin has either seen him or known him. That is, so strong is our link with him. So powerful are his cleansing tides within us that if we say we have Christ in us and do not show some evidence of it in increasing degree, then we are deceiving ourselves. John says we don't have him at all. We've never seen him or known him. He gives us the power because he lives in us to destroy lawlessness. That's his call. That is the revolution that Jesus set on to bring to pass to let us, to set us free from lawlessness. There are people who can recite Bible verses. They know all the creeds of all the history. The whole family might be Christian, but anyone who lives lawlessly has not known him. Verse 7 said this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Do not let anyone lead you. They will try. Satan will try. There is much attempt today to put on a pious front to make it real, but don't let them kid you. The true sign, he who does righteous, right is righteous. Remember, righteousness is love behaving rightly. Righteousness is love behaving rightly. He who acts that way, that kind of love, that kind of love is always self-sacrificing. Self-sacrificing. So much of what is in the name of love in the culture is all about 
self-gratification. What's in it for me? The kind of love here we're talking about is self-sacrificing because it's linked to the one who gave his all that we might live. The righteous one. He who does right is righteous just as he is righteous. It's interesting the original language just as he is righteous. The original language, if you look at it, it would appear uh, that one. That one appeared to take away sins. Little children, let no one deceive you. Who does right is righteous as that one. That one is righteous. It's almost as if John is writing in this, Jesus is standing right there. That one. That one. When we walk in the light, we're righteous like that one. That one. He does right because that one is righteous. And he's really not next to us. Really, he's inside of us. Inside of us. There must be righteousness breaking out from time to time in our lives. Because he lives in us. When a person discovers this and learns to abide in him, all the time expecting that one to be working in him, then he soon learns he cannot do anything without him. That part, expecting that one to be working in him. Oh, that we would all live that way. We all know men, women, we look at them and say, wow, they're a godly person. They oppress me. Their righteousness. You have that same spirit if you have Jesus living in you. You have that same possibility of those people that you look up to and follow because they're like the Apostle Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ. Understand that he lives in you. You can expect him to work through you, to love through you, to forgive through you, to bless other people through you. The Apostle Paul discovered I can have plenty, I can have nothing. I can be naked, I can have fine clothes. Food, no food. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when he says that all things, it all goes back to abiding in him, obeying his word. Paul said, I can go anywhere that he takes me because he will strengthen me. You can't use that promise to be something that he didn't call you to be. You can use that promise to be what he called you to be and do what he called you to do. I will never be a ballerina no matter how many times I quote that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Never. But you know, I've discovered that God can use me to speak to a crowd of people even though there was a time I wouldn't speak in front of anybody because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he called me to do what I'm doing. And as I walk in obedience, he empowers me to do that. I hope you others understand what I'm saying. It's not a blank promise to make me something I can't be because God didn't call me to be that. But whatever he called me to be and whatever he called me to go, whatever he called me to say, I can do it through him who strengthens me. Because, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This passage is all in the context of how great is his love that he's lavished on us. We live in victory over sin by the power of his love. Let's stand and sing the power of his love. We'll close in prayer.